0: Uh, Good morning and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all uh, to the first session entitled uh, Cloud-based Management Services uh, in Banking and um, Case Study in the first 9. My name is Motlatsi and I'll be sharing the session today. We have some 60 odd minutes for the presentation and questions, so I'd appreciate if you'd maybe leave your questions to the end. Um, Before I introduce our speaker, maybe just Uh, some rules of engagement. As I said, we'll have questions at the later stage, or at least after the presentations. Uh, Mobile phones, I think you know what to do with those right now. Um, And as usual, we have obviously a number of platforms that you can connect and comment on. Um, Please use, uh, for Twitter, use the hashtag asa 2018 and you can also um, log on to um, the handle Actuarial Essay, I think it is. Yeah. But importantly, please use our app, right? So the convention has an app. Um, Please make sure you're registered on there. As you know, I think um, at the end of each day, there will be prizes for the most active. I think you get points each time you interact uh, on the app. So please, uh, it's in your benefit, I guess, to use that. Um, And also, you'll be able to rate the presenter, obviously. Uh, I think he will also like some of that feedback. So that would be great for him, too. Um, and finally, just the standard stuff, in case of any emergency, please use the main, the main uh, doors. There's also fire exits um, to my left here. Okay, and about our speaker today, um, uh, Matt is a director at EY, recently joined EY. He's got, I think he's got some experience in first 9 related stuff. He's worked, he's done some projects both in South Africa and some of the countries on the continent. Uh, model verification, model implementation, verification, audit work. So I think uh, I think he's got some idea what uh, uh, you will be talking about. Um, without further ado, Matt. Thank you. Cool.
1: Thanks, everyone. Um, yeah, thanks, Ms. So, I think I just wanted to start the presentation about you know, talking about why I thought this was a topic worth covering at the convention. And not just because of these, this artwork provided by ASA, um, but it does work very well. Thank you, ASA, for, the, for that cover. Um, it's because I think cloud based managed services is a legitimate alternative business model for all banks as well as other financial institutions to be considering my reasons for why I think this is you know, what I'm going to try and unpack during the course of the presentation. But I think one of the really topical things that's come up recently that you know, I think that emphasizes this point is the fact that Microsoft Azure were opening data centers in South Africa. Um, in fact, they should be opening this month. They announced that they were going to open these data centers back in February. Uh, so currently you may, you may be getting access to Microsoft Azure, but if you are, you'd be using a data center that might be situated in Amsterdam or Dublin, but probably somewhere in Europe um, and obviously from a poppy perspective, protection of personal information, um, there's going to be challenges around storing certain things overseas. So their, you know, their, their data centers being based in South Africa will help a lot with that. So that's something that uh, I guess from a, from a client perspective is quite exciting. Dimension data, obviously in the South African market we're providing similar services, but uh, Microsoft is here bringing in a lot more competition, something to consider. Um, I think also around the pricing points, and part of the reason why bringing it into South Africa made sense was it was actually only last week, I think on the 16th of October, Microsoft announced that, well, they announced previously, but the increase that went through last week uh, of a 23.6% increase in their fees. So if, you know, from one day to the next, there's almost a 25% jump in the fees and largely mm-hmm. due to the, you know, the rain depreciation against the dollar and, and the, most of the costing being priced in dollars. So it's quite a significant. Reason in addition to you know, the security and the legal side to bring some of those services into South Africa. So it is essentially a technolo- technology based presentation, but, but hopefully quite a practical one. Um, there will obviously be some, some stuff we're talking about for FRS 9 related, uh, but it's not primarily an FRS 9 related discussion. So hopefully it is something that you'll find practical. And as we go through it, it's um, something that you might find a way to think about how you could implement in your own organizations. So just some of the, you know, briefly running through what the presentation covers. So we're going to start by looking at some of those, you know, those buzzwords. So even the t- presentation of this talk is just a combination of certain buzzwords, cloud-based, many services, et cetera. So just want to break down some of those concepts um, and then bring it together with that IFRS 9 case study. Um, And then towards the end, we'll just cover some some additional topics we can chat about in terms of EFROS 9 and challenges that have been faced across the continent. So on the topic of buzzwords, where better to start than FinTech? So this is something that most of you would be quite familiar with and and something that I think might mean different things to different people. So just to contextualize, I'll put here what is the definition provided by the BCBS, the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision. As part of some of this mandatory presentation training that you had to go on, I was told that everyone in the audience should be able to read, and I shouldn't read this to you. So I'll leave that to you to to look through. Um, But essentially, it's quite a big mouthful, but it's a very very broad and and, uh, holistic definition of what FinTech might cover. And just as an aside, a portmanteau is the creation is a word that you for, for taking two separate words like financial technology, putting them together. So. If you didn't know that, then at least maybe you'll hopefully remember something and have something interesting to learn from the presentation. So uh, looking to regtech, so, you know, sort of one of the subsets of FinTech um, and probably one of the areas that have received that kind of tech treatment in more recent times. But like it's big brother FinTech, it might also mean different things to different people. Um, So this definition, technological innovation that assists organizations with regulatory compliance, I think it's something that hopefully from an actuarial perspective or even just for any other quant working in banking, it's something that you might find to be quite interesting and quite relevant to you. So looking into RegTech a little bit further, um, so the name itself might be relatively new but the, you know, the, the combination of using technology to solve regulatory problems is, is something that has certainly been around for quite a long time. Um, and especially with an increasing focus on data and reporting um, and increasing levels of regulation in general, it's an area that's becoming more and more relevant for banks to consider. Um, so typically up to now I'm thinking that you know, in, the, in the banking space in, in particular you would have had access to, you know, to, to, to a lot of technology but often through those big tech vendors. Um, so your you know, guys who you know, studied very large complicated software um, and if you weren't buying all the different components of that software you wouldn't necessarily always be getting the benefits of the whole package. Uh, so a reg solution should be able to try and mitigate some of those challenges. So I mean, just some of those highlights of what you should get from a reg offering would be the agility. This is really the key difference between a reg offering and a traditional, you know, a traditional technology offering. Uh, typically a, a, you know, a standard technology offering would be quite locked down, inflexible, often require programming in proprietary languages. Um, uh, and obviously with, an, you know, with, with the agility of a, of a regtech solution you should be able to power pass some of those challenges in getting solutions developed. In terms of the speed to get it, to, you know, to produce reports, get things up and running very quickly I think is something that should be, you know, benefit with, with reg tech. Um, just thinking in terms of like the Excel spreadsheets that often get used in reporting uh, I think this one is probably even more relevant on the insurance side than on the, on the banking side, but where they are, you know, for example, you know, ifr 17 solutions being developed, uh, hopefully it could become a catalyst for moving more towards technology-based solutions and away from those cumbersome spreadsheets. Uh, in terms of integration, uh, you, one should expect shorter time frames to get solutions up and running when using regtech. Um, and the last point there, analytics. Uh, a solution should be able to provide you with additional benefits, so with that, with that same data set that you're using for your regulatory reporting, you should be able to you know, use that information to gain additional knowledge by mining that data. So, uh, in the middle there, that's an interesting statistic. Uh, back in 2014, banks spent in Europe about 55 billion dollars on the RTE. Uh, only nine billion of that was spent on the new systems. So the big bulk of that being spent to bolt on new components to all of their existing systems, uh, or, at least just, or even just to potentially maintain and keep up their existing technology. Uh, so kind of demonstrating the need to bring in some, you know, more sophisticated or cost-effective opportunities. So where would you typically want to use rig tech? Um, so generally things where there's going to be heavy lifting, uh, a lot of quant work involved. Um, so areas like MR tools, uh, dashboarding tools, etc., but then potentially also just for data warehousing. Um, so in terms of all of these tech solutions, obviously I think something you hear a lot about during this convention would be insure tech, but there's also paid tech, um, wealth tech, et um, The last one I want to look at was big tech. So this is something that as a, as a term may not be as familiar, um, but it's quite relevant to this presentation because all of these types of firms are very big players in the space. So, on the left hand side, there, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon uh, making up the uh, acronym uh, GAFA. And uh, then uh, the ones on the right hand side, BATS being made up of Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, and all BATS if you include Signer in that. Um, I think, um, not specifically talking about them, but I just think they, you know, it's interesting to consider. I think it wasn't in the plenary this morning, but I think it's also quite relevant to kind of understand where the Chinese firms are playing in this space. Um, and also, they probably have more interesting logos than most of the American companies. It might just be that you're not used to seeing them. Um, so, in general, these guys—and I think also Microsoft and IBM included—they're uh, relevant to this discussion because they all provide web-based services that other companies rely on. Uh, but also, with themselves, with their global presence and their large customer bases, uh, they provide a lot of services directly to their own clients. Uh, including financial services. So certainly competitors to the the standard plays in the financial services industry. So moving on to the concepts around cloud computing, uh, it's also quite a broad term and covers quite a lot of different services and offerings which we're going to break down uh, over the next couple pictures. Uh, But essentially though it's something, it's it's a situation where you're allowing someone access to a system to run something uh, that doesn't belong to them. Uh, so the computer itself, your computer wouldn't be doing most of the work, but you know, the computer on the other side would be doing all of the heavy lifting. So it's something that you would have you know, been quite used to and familiar with even in a personal context for people that uh, you know, would, would uh, prefer Android, everything relating to uh, Gmail, Google Drive, Google Docs, et cetera. And then obviously iCloud is a bit of a giveaway on the Apple side. Some other points to note, so typically it would be subscription based, and sometimes you wouldn't necessarily know that you're paying because sometimes you're just paying via adverts for these types of services. Um, Can be used obviously with business or personal use, Um, but cloud computing is in itself a multi-billion dollar industry globally. So it really became a buzzword probably about 10 years ago in about 2008, but the concepts around cloud computing have been around quite a lot longer than that. So if you had to think about that, if you had to guess a decade, what would you say? So it actually was probably from around about the early 1960s. Um, so this picture here at the top is of a—it's the IBM 1401, which apparently was quite a successful computer, with about 12,000 of these things getting sold, each one taking up the entire floor of a building. Um, and you know back then the, the computers were really just a terminal linking to a mainframe, but that mainframe was essentially like the cloud computer that we're talking about today. The picture of the guy at the bottom, John McCarthy. So he was actually the guy, one of the fathers of AI, and the guy that actually coined the phrase artificial intelligence. Um, So maybe a a second fun fact there. So um, you know, between between what he had created and what they started in the 1960s um, was a time-sharing model where you'd be able to you know use computers more efficiently by using that same network across multiple different users. Um, You know, typically with the you know with the with the capacity constraints that you had in computers, it just made a lot of sense. But then we went into a phase where most people moved towards their personal computers um, and largely because of the, you know, the cost of those coming down and becoming quite efficient to use um, but if you think about it, it 's quite interesting that we've kind of you know, gone back full circle and if you look back at you know the history of computing in a hundred years from now, this time period that most of us grew up with around having a personal computer of, you know, of your own on your own on your own desk you know it could just be like a little blip in the history of computing so just uh some, more, I guess, um, interesting information around cloud computing. NetSuite and Salesforce are probably two of the biggest players in cloud computing, two of the biggest success stories. NetSuite were acquired by Oracle in 2016. They were both around before the, you know, the tech uh, bubble bust over, uh, in the early 2000s. Came out much stronger on the other side. Um, but something that I think is very interesting is this picture on the right hand side here which is of the IBM quantum computer that you can access from the cloud. IBM started offering the capabilities to access this. Server uh, or this computer for for processing back in about 2016. Um, I think that is what it looks like based on my research. That's the best picture I could find. I think it also just illustrates how importantly big tech firms are taking this, you know, this whole kind of venture into cloud computing. So, if you were to, you know, consider cloud computing options, what would you be able to do? So, there's, you know, I think the two key options here are, you know, public clouds and private clouds, and then hybrids, obviously being a combination between the two. So on the, you know, a public cloud, uh, so that's obviously being offered by a third party, a vendor. Generally, you, should, you would expect a better scalability and reliability, um, but th- the key difference being the cost efficiency that could be gained from sharing that system across multiple users. Uh, on the private side, um, perhaps perhaps a, a, a more at least perceived level of security, but but certainly larger, greater flexibility and greater control over how the system was set up and how it could be running. And then, and then a hybrid obviously being a combination of those two models in terms of the benefits that you could gain from it. So thinking now on the third, you know, from a third party perspective you were getting cloud computer services provided to you, um, there's you know, various business models of how that can work. So starting at the top of this hierarchy, software as a service, so that's really when you're getting a subscription service just to access software. So typically focused on end users. Um, and then the provider would maintain all of the, you know, the ownership of the software underlying it and all of the, the systems. Platform as a service um, is actually more focused on you know, app developers or you know, software developers. So you, you would get access to the environment that you could use to develop apps and share apps. Um, it would allow you to create, test, and deploy those soft, you know, any kind of software you wanted to develop. Then looking at infrastructure service, that's like I guess another lay down, primarily focused on business. Um, so, I would say especially for businesses that are growing fast and rapidly, or where there's key areas or, or components of the business that aren't key and that they want to transfer that you know, responsibility to a third party to manage. Uh, just, a, I guess, another interesting one is function as a service, which sits between software as a service and platform as a service. Um, it's probably one of the more recent developments. So, in that situation, there'd be this level of abstraction between the developers and the virtual machines. Uh, the developer would only need to create certain narrow blocks of code that would then sit on top of the other code provided you know, by the service provider. And this type of model is often used when there's, like, online application forms. Um, and the payments for that would generally only get, you know, start, well, the payments would only start happening when the services get used. Whereas for the other services in general, it's a perpetual fee model, so you're paying, you know, to have a license for a certain period of time. So. Kind of. So those are most of the concepts, but this brings us to the next key piece for this, you know, for this topic, which is managed services itself. So again, starting off with a definition, quite a broad definition there, covering everything relating to managed services. But I think, in you know, in, in simple terms, it's a glorified version of of outsourcing with a, a, a more strategic layer, uh, you know, attached to the top of it. Um. So why why has managed services itself come about? You know, I think you. Certainly, if you read a lot of articles, you know that are produced by some of the consulting firms, it's something that you would have seen quite a lot recently. So, I think the key reason for the emergence is due to this continual cost of regulation pushing up and up and up, um, and causing banks to consider these other alternative business models of how they can manage their risks more effectively. So, there's some stats there that were you know that back that up. This was based on a global risk management survey. Um, Cyber risk and regulatory compliance were kind of expected to grow by most companies between 2017 and 2019 more than any other. And I think that's certainly proven to be the case. And also quite interestingly, uh, globally, banks in 2016 spent about 10% of their annual operating cost just on the regulatory and compliance aspects. So really quite a big significant cost and, and the motivation for trying to find alternative business models to service these things better. So just taking a look at the evolution of outsourcing, um, American Express, I think, were one of the first companies to start doing this. And then it is all the way back in 1992 probably before some of the guys were born in this room, I think. Um, but yeah, so essentially they took a strategic bet to take out part of their business that they thought was going to become commoditized, so that transaction processing units of their business and ship that out into, a, into, a, into, a, um, into an outsource function so that they could take a strategic focus on growing and developing the card issuing business that they had. So what I wanted to go into next is if you were to consider managed services within your organisation. what what are the kind of considerations that you need to look at? So for this, we're going to look, you know, comparing where would you want to use a managed service versus where would you use traditional outsourcing, where would you want to continue with in-house execution, and considering this in terms of three different functions within a bank, so that could be designing and validating internal controls, managing the back office IT area of of the organization, or credit underwriting and monitoring. And in this context, on the credit underwriting side, we're talking more about, I guess, traditional lending decision making in the business context where you'd have guys sitting there looking at financial statements, looking at can calculating financial ratios and using that as the basis for making lending decisions. Okay, so if we start with that credit underwriting and, and monitoring, this is the typical type of thing that would fit best into an in-house execution mode. So the types of things that we're looking about coming up with this decision is, to what degree does that failure of that component um, increase enterprise risk What's the kind of focus there around competitive differentiation of this part of the service? Are there specialist technical expertise involved? And is there a high velocity of change around those technical skills? So do you need to be staying on top of changes in regulation, um, new methodologies coming out, all of these sorts of things that you need to be thinking about? So if we just break this one down, looking through uncredit underwriting and monitoring. Uh, from an enterprise risk perspective, certainly can be quite high, so that if you're doing this wrong, you're either going to be lending to customers who are not going to be able to pay you back or, you, or you're potentially cutting out a lot of customers that could be profitable. So that, that, that's quite a key component. Um, also, high competitive differentiation. So if you can lend better than your clients or so than your competitors, and uh, if you can find the best clients in the market, you're gonna be making more money than your competitors because you're either you know, you, you, uh, making sure that you're picking up the best clients in the market, offering the most appropriate rates given their levels of risk. Um, so then if we look at the specialist technical expertise, generally quite low. So again, I think from a business perspective where the methodologies around credit lending have been very consistent over time, uh, quite, quite a stable environment in terms of the skills and the experience required. And therefore also quite a low velocity of change in those skills. So, so that sort of makeup you know, is, is the, you know, in, in this framework is some areas that you'd want to focus on using in-house execution. So, so then I guess brings us to the next one. So what about traditional outsourcing? So the key, steps, you know, I think this, uh, the, the, that American Express example is quite similar to this. So managing that IT office infrastructure is something that you know, a lot of organizations have been outsourcing for quite a period of time, um, and something that works quite well in this context. So certainly there can be you know, high enterprise risk if your IT functions fail, but if you break down all of the arts within an organization, there's some components that are very key, but there's some components that could even go down for a day and it wouldn't cause you know, a significant issue for the organization. So that, hence that one being in the middle, uh, not as high as, as, the, you know, as the, what we are previously looking at from a risk perspective. So, uh, definitely not an area where there's competitive differentiation. So if you just think, you know, you know from how you would choose the bank that you want to bank with, or in a company that you want to take out insurance policy with, you don't really have any consideration for the arts infrastructure you know, that's at the back of their services. So, some level of specialist technical expertise and a reasonable you know, change in terms of the skills required, but quite stable and not an area where, you know, where there's a lot of changes or a lot of rapid changes around you know, the technology and you know, the experience required. So, that brings us to the third one. So, what actually then works in a managed services context? Um, so out of those three options that we're looking at, that would be the designing and validating internal controls. So we break this one down. If you think about the risk to, a, to an organization, it can be quite high. Uh, so, so thinking about, you know, if your financial statements aren't produced on time, or if your regulatory returns, don't get to the regulator on time, you're going to find yourself in a situation where you could be getting quite significant fines. Uh, so the penalty of the fine itself is an issue, but then also, you know, the reputational risk associated with, with that could be quite significant. But Not an area where there's any competitive differentiation, so it's not something that you know again clients would be concerned about when they're choosing who to bank with or what type of company to take out insurance product with um, in terms of the expertise, you know if you're thinking about you know building uh, regulatory models for for capital for provisioning uh, et cetera. Uh, quite a lot of specialist expertise required but also quite a lot of change if we are thinking about new technologies that are coming out, new methodologies that are being developed, trying to stay up to date with, you know, academic literature on, on the best, best, best methodologies. Also changes coming out from regulators, uh, additional uh, recommendations, et cetera. So quite a lot of challenge around those areas um, but this would be the type, of, the, the type of opportunities where managed services could play a role. So just summarizing what would then make up the logical places to focus on applying managed services, uh, it would be where there's that relationship um, and a need for urgent specialized skills that could be evolving quickly, uh, where competitive differentiation is definitely very low, Um, and just getting back to that general definition, it's, it's an area where you'd want to have a focused strategic relationship that would allow the organization to focus on their top strategic priorities. Okay, so if we take those concepts that we we're talking about up until now, we take the reg tech and we kind of blend it with computer, uh, sorry, cloud computing and the managed services, you know, what, what, what type of issues could you solve? So and there probably are probably quite a few things you could think about, but you know, IFRS 9 in a banking context is certainly one of those areas. So there's four dimensions if we just think about what a, what a, you know, what a managed service needed to cover requiring special skills uh, you know, a high risk area to the organization, uh, high velocity of change, I think that's something to be, to be determined still, but I think generally in these areas, and certainly over the next few years, there could be quite a lot of velocity of change in terms of better methodologies coming through, you know, things especially like on the macroeconomic forecasting, et cetera, um, but definitely not an area where there's any competitive differentiation for organizations. Uh, also, if you place you know, accounting compliance under that general reg umbrella, and thinking from a reg tech perspective, uh, the definition, just going back to what you had earlier, technological innovation that assists organisations with regulatory compliance and with managing the risk more effectively. So we can definitely tick that box as well. Something that you know uh, a managed service could assist with. Okay, so looking at this case study of how it could apply in you know in the world of Ifrs nine, starting on the left hand side here, uh, bank process relating to the data generation, and then on the right hand side, also going back into the second components of the bank's process. And in the middle is a piece that's provided as a managed service. You can see I didn't color that block in black. So it's not a black box. That's really not the point of the exercise here. But we'll break down some of those components that sit within it. Um, So the bank process initially would be generating data out of their core banking systems. Sometimes even putting data out of spreadsheets. And sometimes, uh, in some extreme cases, taking stuff out of uh, physical files even. moving to, you know, then take, taking that, all of those data from those various sources, reconciling them, standardizing them and masking them, uploading them into a cloud storage facility, and then from that, you know, we start the managed service process, which is creating some data quality assessment, and based on that, giving data quality reports back to the bank, uh, and the bank with that feedback could potentially be updating things, correcting issues, so that that's how we get to results, everything is making sense. So once the data is okay, move into that ECL calculation process, For people not working in banking, that's the expected credit loss calculation engine. So it's really the the nuts and bolts for how we calculate the provision. Following that, there's a stage allocation. So again, kind of talking to some of the specific requirements around IFRS 9, allocating accounts either to stage 1, stage 2 or stage 3, depending on how how they're performing and if they're up to date with their uh, their payment terms. Uh, Following that, we get to the base IFRS 9 results. And so that's, that's all produced within the managed service component. Uh, the way this structure set out, uh, other forward looking, inf- or sorry, the forward looking information and other ad- portfolio adjustments potentially could be sitting outside of the base calculation models. Uh, for- so with that process then, with those adjustments from management and that oversight from management, getting to our final IFRS 9 results. And then with, that syst- with, with, with all of that happening within a system, the managed service provider could go back to producing MR reports for management Creating the IFRS 7 disclosures, uh, creating other risk finance dashboards, and also potentially calculating uh, the journal entries that would need to get posted you know, for, uh, for the accounting from the accounting point of view. So that's in you know, an IFRS 9 context how you know, how a managed service could work. On the forward-looking information piece, you know, there's still an option that that could sit within a managed service or even be provided as a separate service in itself. But uh, I guess that, that is, I think probably gives you a kind of a general sense of how the process could work. Similarly, within an infra 17 context, I think, for the insurers in the room, you could think about how the type of process could work in that context as well. So then just thinking about some of the benefits that could be gained of using this sort of a, approach. Uh, and really this is actually now taking a combination of the benefits of using cloud, uh, using a managed service provider with a, the right expertise, you could create some more scalable or agile solutions um, so, making it easier to grow your business as you, you know, as you kind of grow your books, as you add portfolios, um, takes away some of the pain points around managing large, complex systems. It gives you that ability to add or remove features, and also, on the cloud, you know, on the, from the cloud perspective, almost getting to a point where you have an infinite amount of storage that you could use. Um, from a security perspective, uh, I think it's important to pre- appreciate that the providers of these sorts of services. Um, have a very v- big vested interest in making sure that their security systems is always up to date. So it's something that's you know that's really core to what they offer. And so in terms of in terms of what they offer, they really are you know at, at the at the front of the pack. Um, so some of the things that they would consider there is you know how the data centres are set up in terms of storing data across multiple servers, um, always encrypting data whilst at rest and whilst in transition. Um, so so generally like managing all of that you know in, in the best way possible. Uh, you would also get more flexibility and customized control over your data. Um, the convenience of access, meaning that you know, if that system's sitting in a cloud environment you can access it from anywhere in the world, I guess there's pros and cons to that, but, but certainly you're giving you that flexibility if you needed it. And you'd always in theory have a solution that's up to date because that, you know, the responsibility for ensuring the compliance with regulation and best practices now is something that is in the hands of the service provider. Um, I think also from a cost-saving point of view, the pay-as-you-use principle is very important. So that can work from a storage point of view and also from a processing point of view. So in terms of the storage itself, you know, you can scale up and, and add on data or, or add on storage space as you require it, um, rather than say you know buying buying things up front and and having it you know sit unused for you know for potentially months or years. And then from a processing perspective, you also have the flexibility to add processing power for certain periods of time. So during your month end process, if you needed things to be running, or if you're running a lot more sys- processes, uh, you, need, you, need, you need things to be run faster, you could scale up your processing power for just that last week around, around your reporting period, and then for the rest of the month scale that back. So you're not even paying for all of the processing power that you need you know, on a continuous basis. So, um, so, so that sort of paints quite a rosy picture of how many services could work and you know the value they could add. But there are also obviously some practical considerations that you need to think about if you wanted to really get into this. So I think the one concept there is that the provider should have skin in the game. So thinking about having indemnification, having clear SLAs in place, so understanding if you think about that IFRS 9 process, how you go from the data to upload into the cloud and then the handles back to management, being very clear about the responsibilities and, and, and where they lie. And also, even relating to the, you know, the time frame that you have for monthly reporting, to ensure that the SLA covers the time period that, that each, of the, each of the components need to be uh, you know, need to be provided by. Um, in terms of stakeholder concerns, I think it is possible through that SLA process, you know, to create specific, measurable goals uh, that can then give all of the different stakeholders in the process the comfort that they require. One of the complexities here is that you are working with risk teams and finance teams and business teams, so you need to be able to tick the box for all of them across this whole process to make sure that everybody's happy. Um, in terms of what you want, you know, to look for in a managed service provider, um, some things could be, you know, the consideration around their own track record, their ability to, you know, meet their own compliance requirements, their abilities to audit, uh, to design the processes and to execute on what they, you know, what they're committing to. The quality of their staff and also thinking about that, the, the, you know, the, the possibility of their own staff turnover. Um, contingency plans that they might have in place for if some of their key staff members leave. Um, in terms of the provider's reputation, thinking about how they interact with other industry participants, their relationship with the regulators, etc. Uh, also, obviously, their, rela- re- their relationship with the vendors that they would be, be relying on. Do you need them to have a global footprint? Um, so depending on where, where you as an organization operating it might be important that you have a provider that understands you know, some of the nuances in some of the areas that you operate in uh, given some of the, you know, the regulatory variations across even across the continent that we live on. In terms of the institutional strength thinking about their financial soundness um, is quite important understanding like you know will there be a growing concern a couple of years from now when you're still relying on them and their services. Um, and that's, as part of the process of how you'd set up these agreements, you also then need to think about what happens if they go out of business? What type of dependency do you have on them? Uh, even thinking down to the level of the IP of the system that they've built, does um, that something that can revert back to you or is that something that's always going to sit on their side? And if you don't have those sort of things you get up front, you get to a point down the line where you could really be you know, in, in a, in a tight position and not know what to do. Um, so I think ultimately the key practical consideration it comes down to the cost versus benefits. So can you set up an arrangement with a managed services provider that will provide you with all of the benefits that we spoke about on the previous slide, but also do it in a way that's going to be cost effective to you. Um, so, so next I just want to touch on some of the regulatory concerns around this. So I think it is, you know, even if you think that up to this point this all sounds, you know, quite, quite good, it's something that's worth considering. Um, you know, it's actually interesting to note that there has been some guidance and some comments from the Reserve Bank around this. So the SOB's prudential uh, authority released a paper, a discussion paper last year in 2017, which was then uh, finalized as Directive 7 of 2018, and this was only released last month in fact, along with a guidance note. Um, so it's relatively still hot off the press, but what these papers did was clarify some of the concerns and some of the things that you know, they thought one needed to consider before using. Uh, cloud computing and also for any considerations around offshoring of data. So quite a useful paper to look at if you were going down, you know, if you wanted to go down that road. Um, also interestingly enough, they, they released a paper um, on specifically on the topic of outsourcing back in 2014. So they have been quite proactive around thinking about these things. So so overall they do recognize the benefits of outsourcing and, and you know and the and you know the, the benefits that cloud computing can bring. Um, but what are these, all of these little blocks on the screen here I think are just of the areas that their papers have kind of covered in terms of things that they, you know, that they think banks or other financial institutions would need to consider and be careful with. I'm not going to go through all of them. I think a couple that are quite interesting to point out is uh, supervisor access and, 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 and audits. So you know, when you're setting up these sorts of processes and systems, it's important to ensure that the auditors can get access to all of the data they need and when they need it, as well as the supervisors. So, at no point, you know, through the use of a cloud computing uh, you know, structure or through the use of a managed service provider, can you get to a point where you can inhibit the supervisor's access to the data and the you know and the reports that they require. So, I think overall quite positive in terms of what's you know what their views are and what they've what they uh, you know what they're proposing. So I guess to move a little bit I guess onto a tangent here. So thinking about ePrison9 in Africa. I think, uh, I think where this is relevant to some of the previous information is that if we look through some of these challenges, what we were talking about before is actually certainly something that can help you know, overcome some of the challenges that, that countries have seen around the continent. So some of those key challenges, the interpretation of accounting standards, uh, I think this was more of a global challenge. It wasn't necessarily an Africa-specific challenge. Um, and so but something that all the firms were uh, you know, struggling with even up to some point during the year of 2018. Despite you know the implementation of the dates being one June two thousand eighteen, the other three I think are uh, i guess general general to some extent, but also the areas that are more important to uh, banks across Africa, data integrity the systems and and, you know, and the skills question so in terms of the data and the systems, I think uh, there 's also a disparity between the organizations in Africa that are uh, you know the, the, uh, related to your big four banks in South Africa, so the big four banks in South Africa with Organ, uh, operations in these other countries, you know, you have, they have that big brother mentality that they'll get looked after. Also when there's other international banks that have operations uh, across the continent, uh, Standard Chartered as an example, they have a lot of support coming from that global party. Where there's bigger challenges are for the organizations that are only working in countries you know, across the continent outside of South Africa. They also, they also don't have that opportunity to, you know, to kind of sweep things under the carpet or, or downplay some challenges due to the materiality. So from a group perspective, if you know, your South African operations are you know, 90% and, and your African operations are only 10%, just on a materiality basis, you can get away with doing simpler things across the rest of, the, you know, across the rest of your operations. If you only operate in some of these other countries, you, you, that, uh, you know, that sort of uh, opportunity doesn't exist, and you need to ensure that you fully compliant in all of those countries themselves. Um, so the countries that I've highlighted on the right there on the map, so these are the countries that to the best of my, uh, best of my I guess, researching capabilities and, and some of the network that I've tried to reach out to were able to clarify for me and were actually able to provide me with the, the papers, or the guidance papers provided by these central banks. So these are the, so I'm not, it, it may not be a comprehensive, a fully comprehensive list. But if there are others out there, I think it would—I uh, would be quite interested to know. Uh, so so we, Nigeria is uh, in, in the West Africa. They had released guidance uh, around the implementation of fs 9 quite quite far back. In fact, before the South African Reserve Bank did, um, and they were, you know, just so they were really just talking about some of the modelling components and how you should help to, build, you know, build the models. Um, so down the right hand side, there, East Africa, Kenya. The little ones, Rwanda, if you weren't sure, and Tanzania. So, those countries had all released guidance, and their guidance covered some aspects around the methodologies, but also around the transitional arrangements. So, the transitional arrangement is how banks need to take the difference between IS39 to IFRS 9 and the impact that that could have on the capital of the bank, and how they could adjust for that over a certain period of time. So, uh, K- Kenya um, took the maximum allowable period, so they were allowed to make, take that transitional adjustment over five years. Rwanda four years, Tanzania was uh, similar to South Africa, they're allowed to make an adjustment over three years. Um, so I think there is a caveat in that a lot of these countries don't necessarily need uh, transitional arrangements because the, the um, regulatory reserves that they need to hold, so essentially like the provision that the, that the, that the central bank pushes down on them um, would in some situations be significantly high, or, and, and higher than what they thought their 1st time non-provision was going to be. So if that was the case, then they wouldn't have had to have a challenge around the transition. Um, but whether that was really going to be the case in you know in, in all countries I think was um, you know uh, quite optimistic so it's, and it's not clear that there wouldn't be a transitional challenge for some of these countries um, despite actually having that uh, statutory provision or that you know that regulatory provision that they needed to hold um, so I think we can come back to this one if there's any questions specifically around the rest of Africa and I, I think it's something I'll maybe also put out to the floor if there's any you know, anyone else that has other comments around other countries in Africa and their understanding. Uh, you know, I think certainly in some countries I'm aware of there being uh, like bilateral discussions between the banks and the central banks, but these are the countries that I've been referring to where there's actually been publicly you know, available information. So then just to summarize everything, I think three questions that, that I'd leave you with to think about would be are you getting the most out of your data currently? Uh, do you understand the regulatory technology existing within your organization? And are you leveraging all of that existing technology to the full extent of its capabilities? Uh, And the flip side of that, do you think you're paying for things that you don't actually need? And if you answer yes to any of these questions, then I would encourage you to think about trying to use cloud-based services uh, or managed services or a combination of the both. Thank you. If you have been, thank you for listening.
0: Great. Thank you, Matt. We have uh, some ten minutes uh, for questions. Um, I think there's a mic going around. Maybe I can start off. I mean, in essence, the question you're trying to answer is really a cost question, right? It's about um, where do you want to spend – where is your capital expenditure? It's about where is it most efficient? Where do you want to you know, to, to be most efficient and get the most bang for buck in essence right
1: Yes, I think uh, the cost question is definitely a big one um, and I think I think when when you're looking at the alternatives here, so one of the the key alternatives is using these large vendor solutions um, and, and the cost of those can be quite significant so it's um, the question of the the managed service plus the I guess, potentially lower technology cost compared to the large technology cost of of large vendors. I think that's one of the key components that you need to think about in that that cost-benefit analysis.
0: Just two other questions, just in your experience on the rest of the continent. Um, First is that, um, I mean, I'd be interested to know what regulators make of this. Right. So in other words, are they happy that the banks would be using effectively managed services stroke outsourced uh, solutions. And also then the question about how do you upscale local staff if all you're doing then, you know, they're just doing effectively the the credit work to get the the business on the books and then everything else gets done uh, elsewhere. So I think,
1: yeah, I think so the BCBS had released uh, papers uh, and then the South African Reserve Bank's you know, papers and guidance is often based on, on those, which is the general process with most of the regulation and the guidance. And then what I guess we, what you see very commonly is that across the rest of the continent, there's, uh, you know, a, a similar sort of uptake. Um, so, you know, a lot of guidance being taken across the continent from 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 the South African Reserve Bank. So to the extent that, you know, the, the, there's, you know, the, the, the view of the Reserve Bank is, is positive around these things, um, it's most likely that most of these other kind, you know, most of the other regulators across Africa will will kind of have a similar view, um, and then in terms of you know I think in, you get the point you're leading to in terms of the, the skills and will, you know and, and the development, I think there's definitely a challenge already. So you know, to the extent that there isn't the skills in country to be able to produce you know the um, the, the, the models and to up- run the models uh, you know to the extent that they're required. Um, you know, there's there's definitely a gap for, you know, for for essentially outsourcing that to someone who's got the right skills and technology to do it. Um, But I think one of the important aspects of that is that as management uh, of a bank, the CFO, CRO, um, and the board are still taking full responsibility for the results. So whilst there's a, you know, a component there that they're outsourcing to get some of the, you know, the complex work done, responsibility doesn't change hands. So they would always still remain... Responsible for the results that are being produced, so you know, I think um, I think that, you know, that's a key point around you know around the, the skills and the, you know, and the and the knowledge, but um, in terms of like the modelling approaches themselves, I think over time it's something that you know as uh, as, as people develop, they could bring that more in house.
0: There's a question. Uh, Thank you for the presentation. I just want to ask, just uh, similar to the the point that you mentioned now, what's the impact of the outsourcing from the point of view that the skills are now sitting outside the organization to the extent that the management who take responsibility for those results actually understand the risks and the going on in the business? Uh, Sorry, can I also add on, especially on that question, just especially around uh, FRS9. The fact that, uh, I guess, a board of directors have to take responsibility for all of this and yet, um, you know, in essence, I, I mean, I don't know where – obviously you'll write some terms of agreement about uh, – terms of engagement about uh, what gets outsourced and what – but ultimately they take taking responsibility for that.
1: Yes, yeah, that's correct. So the, the, they would have to take responsibility. And I think the way they, that they get comfort would be around the amount of disclosures and, those, and the um, the the management information that gets produced, so it's not just a case of getting a final number and having to sign off on the final number, there should be enough supporting information along the way and enough discussion um, with the provider to get them to the point of being comfortable enough to sign it off. Uh, It is a little bit similar to the situation within a bank where there's a modding team could be quite far removed from from a CFO. Um, but there's a lot of discussion and, you know, validation and processes in place that get them to the point of being comfortable.
0: So can I ask just to follow up a follow-up question on that, which I thought of now. Is, um, is there, in, has there been any improvement that you've seen in, in cases like this with the integrity of the process and that it's now outside the organization? So, uh, yes, I think
1: it is still relatively new. Um, but, but you know, personally, I have seen it, and I, th- and I think there might be other people in the room that have also had similar experiences. But there is, there is, uh, I think there are some use cases around where this has been able to work quite well. Um, and even again, coming back to like the more kind of traditional versions of outsourcing, you know, especially around IT functions, that they, there's a lot of complexity around those relationships already, and you know, certainly they've been they've been in place you know, in some cases, you know, over the 20 years. There's a question
0: there. There's a question here at the front. But just hold on, the mic is on its way. While the mic is making its way there, maybe I can just come back to the first question. So I mean, there's obviously a, I mean a lot of people are still finding out. I mean, it's been a hectic 10 months just in terms of uh, very steep learning curves and discoveries and things like that. And um, and particularly in the question of modeling, because there isn't, nothing's been standardized yet. Everybody's effectively still walking around and, and, and trying to find, I guess, <laughs> What works in a, in a safe middle ground to settle on, and this is where I think the question about um, about responsibility for CFOs and things like that, about what they're actually signing off on, especially you know from that perspective, that everybody's still trying to find their way around um, uh, issues, complexities of uh, you know the credit modelling, um, forward-looking data, and you know Customizing it and making it work for the company, and that's what i, I I'm just trying to get a good sense of, of, of the way things are going. in other words, is are the consultants or the outsourced uh, providers providing that sort of standardization in a way, or how, how, how is that working out?
1: so I think it, it varies a lot, so I think you know, and I think South Africa is far, far ahead of you know the rest of the continents on most of these things. So the South African Reserve Bank required. Um, all of the banks in South Africa five months after the uh, implementation dates to uh, have reports that what well, essentially send re- you know send reports to to the South African Reserve Bank ex- you know, explaining how they've done a lot of these things. So that has been quite well governed. Um, definitely in the rest of Africa, I think there's um, uh, not the same level of appreciation of some of the complexities and you know, simplified approaches. And coming back to the point around, you know, so where there's a South African bank that has operations across the continent, most of the models would have been developed in South Africa, so so that, you know, in those situations the level would be, you know, relatively good, um, but for for, for organisations that don't have that support uh, would have generally been relying a lot more on consultants and external parties to, you know, develop the models and get them up to speed. Um, uh, one of the challenges there would have been that if the data wasn't, if you didn't have the sufficient data in place early enough, um, you know, there's, there's been a lot of people who wouldn't have made the, you know, they wouldn't have made the right sort of um, the, the timeline. So so if you were uh, with, with the 1 general you know, implementation date and uh, quarterly reporting it, you would have actually needed to produce IFRS 9, you know, numbers for the first quarter at the end of March. So, yeah, so yeah you know, definitely a lot of banks weren't in the position to be able to do that, so it's still challenged
2: thanks go ahead thanks. um you mentioned a very interesting fact that uh, prices for the Microsoft cloud services went up by about twenty three twenty four um, percent that's that's a huge jump um one of the i think the the, the advantages of using cloud services is the cost right so I'm just wondering where currently um, that level is, even after the 23 percent, um, with how that compares to maintaining the stuff in-house. And secondly, um, I've got a friend who works in the banking area, who was mentioning that um, banks are moving more towards cloud-based data services. I was just wondering what your view on that is in the future? What's most likely to happen. So I think
1: my view would be that definitely I think more 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 banks and, and finance, other financial institutions would be moving more towards that model. Um, the, the, the biggest issue with the cost of, you know, that is, of that Azure had was because of the you know the the prices coming through in US dollars and having to be converted to rands. So you're subject to that currency fluctuation. So which is why. The, the data centers being developed in South Africa will help a lot on the costing side for, from, you know, from that point of view. So there will obviously be some costs that wouldn't be you know, rand-denominated, but I think the, the largest portion of the cost would be. So that would allow them to kind of manage the costs better. Um, dimension data as a South African provider, I think would be not have, you know, be subject to that, you know, the, the, the US dollar fluctuation as much as Microsoft would be. But I think in future, also, Amazon would be, you know, I think also looking to come into South Africa. Uh, so, so I think there will become more competition as well. And with more competition, then you'd also expect that, you know, the prices would become more competitive. Uh, hi. Um, I just wanted to ask, uh, so you spoke uh, – where would um – so, when you speak about this managed service offering, um, is, is EY providing the managed service, and uh, would it be on audit clients? And could you could you also do a similar thing for non-audit clients in terms of modelling their exposures, that sort of thing? Thanks, Daniel. So, I think it's yeah, so. There's good points around audit versus non-audit. So, an audit company wouldn't definitely not be able to provide these sorts of services to one of their audit clients. So, it's because of the independence rules. Um, so, an, or, like, an, you know, a company that does audit work could, could potentially be providing these sorts of services to non-audit clients. Um, but then, at the same time, a company that isn't an audit company could be providing these sorts of services, you know, to, to anyone in the market. I think, the, the, I guess, one of the dichotomies there is the experience and uh, the, the global support and the infrastructure behind some of the big companies versus you know, smaller, essentially fintech startups that could, could uh, offer a similar service.
0: If I can slip one in before um, the floor, um, at, could you also give us an indication of um, what the take-up is in South Africa versus other countries of, you know, managed, um, managed services? So, in other words, are, are providers finding more traction outside of South Africa or is the actual good take-up locally here um, in, this, in the local banks?
1: Yeah, that's a difficult question because you know, when you're referring to the whole globe, it's hard to get a good sense around these things. But uh, so, so, in my experience, I have seen this being implemented in the UK um, and across parts of Europe, um, as well as, uh, I would guess, you know, a little bit of South Africa, but more the rest of it, so in the rest of Africa. So, I think a, a general take up in all areas, but something that's still in its infancy.
2: Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for your presentation, Matthew. So my question is around what in, in, in this case focusing on the outsourcing services or the managed services that when I look at The work that goes into the the blending of the approach or integration. So there's a lot of work around there. So as much as you're moving a lot of functions and depending on the expertise of an outsourced service provider, you still do some work for the integration purposes. So my question is around changing and switching outsourced service providers. What is the ease of doing that considering the work that goes into integration and what risks exist in terms of continuity, where you had been, let's say, using a specific service provider for a long time and you have established dependencies around that, and so also what can uh, companies do to mitigate such exposure to that risk?
1: Yes, so yeah, I think definitely the uh, you know, challenges. Um, in terms of the implementation, uh, it, it is a you know, It's a big exercise in itself, so there would be, you know, I think, a specific project that you need to set up, um, and, and I think that comes back to that, so the, the piloting and running some parallel uh, you know, portfolios, so you wouldn't just, you know, between one month and the next you know, change over completely, so you'd probably run some of these services in parallel and ensure that you're getting consistent results, that the processes are working, uh, start on smaller portfolios before kind of ramping up to more material portfolios before, you know, potentially um, shifting everything across. So there's, I think, a structured way that you could do that, uh, but, but still quite a significant exercise for sure. Um, and then um, – sorry, what is the second
2: part of your So just the issue of now there may be for different reasons and need to switch and change an outsource service provider. So how do you manage towards or against that risk when you have or may have to do that?
1: Yes, okay, sure, thank you. So yeah, so, yeah it, again, very comp- it could be very complicated to do this. Um, so, so, so a challenge that you know that you need to, uh, I guess, uh, think, think about up front and and through the contracting process, uh, through the legal agreement, to have clear, you know, um, breakaway clauses in place. So you would need to be thinking about right up front if you were to depart from using this provider for any reason. Like how does it actually work in terms of RP? Uh, you know, so, so do you get to use that same model? Can that that same model be handed over to another party to run? Can we bring it back in house? So uh, there are quite a few options there, but and but not necessarily like one right answer so uh, depending on the organization, depending on the agreement that you have in place, uh, you, there could be alternatives, but definitely something that you should have a plan for before you actually start.
0: Thank you. are there any other questions? <clears throat> okay Thank you very much. I think this is quite an interesting topic. I mean um, the obviously Quite a lot of issues that we could go into, and especially about which portions. I mean, do you do a full service, uh, uh, full managed service, or do you do portions of this? And you know, what kind of cr- kind of criterion are you using to do that? Um, um, so. Uh, I think that it's, 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 a, it's quite an interesting space to watch and model and, and I guess in a way, and I think you did mention that a lot of it, I guess, is, is going to be quite commoditized as, you know, as things settle, as particularly in the IFRS 9 space. Um, so I think we'll certainly see a lot more of this um, uh, development within uh, MS uh, managed service space. Okay, thank you everybody and uh, thank you to our presenter, uh, Matthew Walker.